Broadcasting live from the Prime Meridian Bank Studios in Tallahassee's All Saints District, this is The Front Row with Tom Block and Keith Jones, presented by Hobson Chevrolet. Get your best deal the Hobson way. Here's Tom Block and Keith Jones. Good evening once again, everybody. Welcome to The Front Row. Tom Block joined by, what's your name again? Ralph. Ralph. He's back. He's back. Keith, good to see you. Been a while. It has been a while. You've been on the basketball circuit. I was on the spring break circuit. I think that means I was working, you were playing. Yes, the spring break circuit, for clarification, involves uh, my kids, not me. So it wasn't like Fort Lauderdale or Panama City or the Caribbean or anything like that. No, it was only New Orleans. Well, it was New Orleans, but... uh, you, not no, not in spring break. You can't get out of that. We didn't go to Bourbon Street. Bull. Don't believe you. <laughs> My kids are five and seven. We got to wait at least a couple them. years. Yeah. I didn't say you took them. I just said I know you were there at some point, probably. All right. So there's a lot to talk about because you and I have not been in the same room together in some time. And uh, among the topics I'd like to get to today is the no more Mister Nice Guy head coach at the University of Georgia, Kirby Smart discussion about should players be able to transfer all that i think folks that listen to this show are familiar with that but we'll get into that in a little bit but we need to start closer on the home front and on the basketball front congratulations to coach sue and the seminal very much so. the sweet 16 and disappointing news that malik beasley is headed to the pros maybe not all that surprising but i'll ask you as somebody who's been with the basketball team for countless years now were you surprised when you saw the news on monday night that malik was headed pro yes i was Two reasons. Number one, there had been no discussion internally uh, about Malik or Dwayne Bacon, for that matter, uh, relative to whether they would or wouldn't. It was a non-discussed, non-topic. What surprised me is that he emphatically said, A, I'm leaving, and B, no, I'm not going to probably reconsider. Recall that different than football, basketball players can actually go to the combine can actually work out for teams, can actually get a hands-on evaluation by real live executives of real live basketball teams. And then as long as they do it within a certain period of time, they can declare that they're coming back to school. And as long as they have not hired an agent, they retain their eligibility. I suspected that one or both of them would go through that process I did not suspect that either one, in this case Beasley in particular, would declare that early and be that emphatic about it. I was looking at my Twitter feed on Monday night, and I saw a tweet from Malik Beasley that he was at a Hawks game. And I thought, that's curious since it's a school night that he's in Atlanta at a Hawks game. And five minutes later was the statement that came out that he had turned pro. So it tells me a couple of things. Number one, uh, most notably what it tells me is that he's willing to roll the dice uh, on where he'll get drafted and 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 instead invest fully in his time to commit himself to get better at basketball. In other words, uh, you know, and I don't know nothing about how Malik did in the classroom, but if you come back to school, you are still going to have to go to class and make some effort there. Now, in theory, he can spend 24 hours a day perfecting his craft. And, and again, not in a disparaging kind of way, but you may remember or you may not have of seen, but Dwayne Bacon was all ACC academic. So he obviously was going to school and was making or is making grades, not to suggest that Malik is not, but simply to say as a contrast, you have some benchmark about what Dwayne's been doing over the two semesters that he's been at Florida State. Uh, the other part that's interesting to me, and I, I just don't know enough about it, 
probably because I haven't taken the time to invest invest the time uh, to learn. But you and I've talked previously about the number of juniors and redshirt sophomores that declare for the NFL draft, and that recently, last couple of draft classes, there's been more than half of them that were not even drafted. So football-wise, they've declared for the draft, and basically half of them were not even drafted, and that's seven rounds of 30-something teams. In the NBA, there's two rounds with 30-something teams, and depending on who you talk to and who you list, you know they've got Beasley from the number 17 pick to the number 28 pick in the first round, maybe sliding, depending on who else you discuss it with, into the second round. I've seen or heard or read of no one who said he won't be drafted. But personally, I don't see that. I don't, you know, based on the one and dones that I've seen at other schools in my 16 years of doing basketball, he's not anywhere near an Okafor or, or, or someone like that. Well, but the one and dones that get the most play are like a Ben Simmons that you are, are potentially the top pick in They're the They're lottery picks. I think the real question with Malik uh, or the significance, I haven't seen anybody suggest he won't get drafted. Maybe that stands to reason. But the biggest difference is in the NBA, you don't get a guaranteed contract if you go in the second round. So if you go in the first round anywhere, whether it's one to, you know, however many teams there are. 30, I think. But- you're getting guaranteed money, and it may not be $50 million, but you and I wouldn't turn down, you know, the, the few million that he would get for that. If you go in the second round, it's sort of a roll of the dice. Some second rounders do get, end up with guaranteed contracts. Others, uh, you know, end up in the development league. They go play in Europe, and really they're not, especially in the development league, you're not making anything. If you play in Europe, you might get a, a decent contract. So, But, but that, that's which is why I go back to saying Malik was willing to roll the dice or knows, has enough inside information that he's confident that, that that's the case. And, and obviously all of us in Seminole Nation are, are ignorant, handicapped, or inexperienced, or D, all of the above, because this is the first one and done. You know, Von Wafer thought he was, but had to stick around another year or two. <laughs> but the first true one and done that that Seminole Nation, Florida State Athletics, has had to deal with. So um, it's new new plowed new plowed ground. For Imagine us. being Calipari. You do this with five guys a year, oh, basically. I, I can't but, imagine. But you know, I thought about that, and then I thought, well, baseball does the same thing every year. I mean, baseball recruiting for baseball, as we've talked about, is just a mess. You don't know until. July, who's definitely coming? I mean, you've got all that you can get drafted three different times, you know, out of high school, out of JUCO. I guess you know four times really after your junior year, after your senior year, depending on your birthday. So, um, my heart's not bleeding for Calipari having that problem because he's not having an issue getting guys in. And and Leonard now has, uh, you know, he's taken the recruiting, he set the recruiting bar higher by getting a one and done. I wish Malik well. He seemed to be, uh, he's obviously a very talented player. Seemed to be a pretty good representative. Uh, My son son loved watching him play. I can assure you that. The one thing I will tell you, and I don't mean this in as negative a way as it sounds, but one of the things that we always forget about these athletes, whether they're freshmen or seniors, is that they're 18 to 22 years of age. And Malik is 18, maybe just turning 19. And just watching he and Bacon together and some of the antics and things that they do, and one side was very refreshing because they were kids. On the other side, just proved that they were 18 years of age and not 27 years of age. And and that maturity issue, what wherever Malik is on that scale, he's going to have to go to 10 real quick because now it's business. My, my sense is, though, and I have not been around Malik to the extent that you have, certainly, um, whether or not it's ultimately a good decision, time will tell. I mean, we'll know in June where he gets drafted and if he makes a roster. 
I, I think he's wise enough to understand the potential pitfalls if he doesn't get drafted and, and the loss of guaranteed money. I don't, I don't think that's an uninformed decision there. Where he goes, it'll depend on how he works out and teams' needs and all that sort of thing. Where does FSU go from here, Keith? Uh, you lose Malik. Uh, as we are recording this, uh, you hope that Dwayne Bacon's coming back. We don't know about XRM, but uh, that, that leaves a hole, although there's a very talented class coming in. Uh, I, 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 I don't know. And, and, again, that speaks to the fact that all during the year there was never any conversation about it, so I never really thought about it. I, I was caught off guard with him announcing this early. I figured if he was going to announce Yeah, it I would thought he would test the, the – I mean, there is the avenue to test the water, so why um, not do that? And, yeah. So, repeating myself. However, uh, I'm not – you know, terribly concerned about it from the standpoint, as long as Isaacs and the rest of the kids show up, uh, you've got a shooting guard or at least a guard in that uh, freshman class that's highly touted. Yeah, that's uh, Trent Forrest. You know, the kid, the Chipley kid can, can certainly score. Trent Forrest, yeah. Uh, so I, I'm not sure philosophically that changes much. I'm disappointed from the standpoint that from a corporate decision, I think part of giving Leonard the extension was based on having the two freshmen back and Isaac again next year. So to that degree, uh, the, the master plan might be changed. A nobody, little bit. nobody has said that, but I think that's the assumption right. was made that, uh, you at least would stand a better chance right. to get him back. And I'm not saying that because it happened now that that master plan is bad. I just, you know, I think that was part of the mix in some way, shape, form or fashion. The reality is it is what it is. And so you deal with it. And as Coach Hamilton likes to talk about, you don't get too high when things go well. You don't get too low when things go bad. If there's anybody that will deal with it, it's Coach Hamilton. He'll just deal with it. There is a flip side or uh, additional factor here more related to Leonard, and we can, we'll can advance the ball on this in the in the next segment. But the ACC has done pretty well in the NCAA tournament. I mean, Six out of six. Six still around. There, there were seven three. in. Louis, Louisville self-imposed. I mean, so I'm asking the bigger question, uh, and we can do it now. You know, realistically, where should FSU expect to be in that? And I know on one hand the answer is if you're going to play the sport, you want to compete at the highest level. We're in it to win it, so FSU's ambition should be win the ACC. Well, guess what? There's There's six or seven other schools in the league that are spending more money, probably more than that, than FSU because their fan base demands it, whether it's Carolina, Syracuse, Louisville, Duke. I mean, I'll mean, i go back to an earlier comment I made. Our football team won a national championship two years ago, played for the national championship the, or was in the playoff the year prior, and then last year we're disappointed because we're only in a New Year's Day Bowl, and we're spending $80 million on the stadium. While basketball has had some money invested in it, proportionally speaking it ain't near that and basketball needs to improve i rest my case where our priorities are yeah it's it's definitely been interesting to see how well the acc has done here and uh, anyway well let's chew on well, this. my count three they could get three into the final four i don't have the brag in front of me i think they can get all four can't they it may be awful it's at least three it'd be interesting we'll have an acc tournament in houston why not okay um We'll, we'll touch more on that. I, I do want to mention uh, as we go to break here that a portion of this program, as always, is uh, brought your way by Madison Social. Uh, it is perfect brunch weather. You weren't here when I, I uh, mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but but Tom Lang was. Between March and I, I want you to, to, to think about this because prob- you probably did this back in your young and dumb days. Young and dumb? What makes you think I'm now old and wise? Well, just between March 19th and May 15th, if you purchase 16 mimosas during brunch, you'll get a social bruncher baseball shirt and a pint glass. Do you have to drink all of them? 
or do you just have to purchase them? Well, well, you know, that is not specified here. It does limit you to four per trip, though. So they are. Uh, I see. Yeah. But you may have found a loophole. Well, all I know it is. It may be cheaper to just buy the shirt, though, if that's the route you were going to go. I was not. Anyway, was go all, to Madison Social for brunch this weekend, Easter brunch. Have a good time Sunday. Go ahead, Keith. Where I was going is I had their hamburger on Monday. I don't like avocado. I took that off, but everything else was wonderful. There. All right, he's Keith. I'm Tom. We're just uh, warming up. We missed each other. Can you tell? We'll come back with uh, more on the latest edition of The Front Row right after this. Listening to the front row with Tom Locke and Keith Jones. Got a question? Email them at the front row at 979ESPNRadio.com. Here's Tom and Keith. Welcome back to the show. Tim Linnefelt, our Seminoles.com insider, will join us next segment. We'll turn our attention to uh, football at that point uh, as spring football and spring practice is uh, well underway. Uh, but, but there's actually a lot to talk about on the basketball front right now. We discussed Malik. I do think it's interesting to look at the uh, the bigger ACC picture. Obviously, the ACC uh, set a record with six teams in the Sweet 16 this year after they tied a record last year with five. Uh, what that tells me, though, Keith, uh, they've done that the last two years, which corresponds with what? When the league expanded and, and in came Louisville and Syracuse and Pitt and some programs that care about basketball. So you're not going to get six every year, but I think the new norm for the ACC is going to be pretty doggone good on an annual basis. Well, it's as we've talked about, Florida State has done an appropriate and a good job of talking and, and speaking to the fact that FSU is the third winningest program in the ACC over the last 10 years. Uh, the only problem is that doesn't include the last four teams that got in three years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you run their numbers again, Florida State is either the sixth or the seventh winningest team in the ACC, which then goes back to our earlier discussion and a longstanding discussion. Where do you want basketball to be? What are you willing to invest? What is the appropriate expectation now that the field is 15 with teams like Louisville, Syracuse being added to Carolina, Duke, their emergence of Virginia and Miami recently. What's reasonable to expect from this Florida State program on the court that is uh, is basketball? I'm not sure we exactly know that answer. We can give the lip service. Well, we expect to win the ACC, but is that now reasonable? Uh, a reasonable expectation given what we're willing to invest in it? Well, I think part of the angst among FSU fans has to do with Miami because Miami is not a basketball pedigree school. And lo and behold, they changed coaches a few years ago and here they are in the sweet 16. They've won the ACC. And so I, I, I honestly, I think that's where a big portion of it comes from. I, I agree. And I think the bigger portion for longstanding FSU fans goes back 20 years plus or minus with what Florida was able to capture with Billy Donovan and, and the Donovan hire at, at in Gainesville. I think that was a once-in-a-generational thing that Florida could, should be applauded for and, and have benefited from. But but you certainly can't say, we're just as good as Florida. We ought to be able to go out and get a Billy Donovan. That's just not going to happen well, you could without, coach without a lot of uh, yeah, I mean, you might good get, fortune. You might get the right guy. Well, that decision's made for this year, so we don't need to rehash right. that. Uh, the, the departure of Malik Beasley makes next year a little bit more interesting right now. I want to go back to the, the six teams in the tournament. You know, that, that does benefit FSU. Uh, 
not even indirectly, it benefits them directly because the ACC shares revenue. But it is, uh, I don't want to use the term negligible or minimal because you're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars. But I, I pulled up, uh, you know, some. Uh, this Look is at an, you being this, the this finance is an, guy. I've even got the highlighter out here. Look at you being the finance guy. This is an guy. article from David Teal, who we haven't had on this uh, latest uh, incarnation of our show, but uh, is as plugged in in the ACC as anybody. Uh, he's out of Virginia, writes for the papers up there, one of the papers up there. But basically if you go back three or four years ago ncaa tournament revenue in 2010 2011 was 10.9 percent of the acc's overall revenue in 11 12 and 12 13 it was 7.9 percent and 7.8 percent now that isn't because the acc didn't do so well in the tournaments because the the football contract changed and total revenue in the league went up 60 or 70 million so my point is and you won't realize the gains from this tournament until next year and subsequent years because they do it in a six-year rolling cycle uh, the, the basketball revenue, as good as the ACC is, still pales in comparison to what you're getting on the TV side, which is why this ACC network question continues forever. And we talked well, about it last week. We haven't talked about it, but that, that's, do you remember the ACE, the ESPN number that has to go to the league if there is no uh, network in July? Three million, forty-five mil total, three million. Right. But that's there's been some backtracking on that. Nobody will officially confirm that. All right, but my point is, it's plus or minus forty million. Do you know what the projected revenue from the AC, the NCAA tournament and basketball to the schools is? It's thirty-two million. So not having the television network pays more pays than- more than the success in the basketball tournament is my point about how big football is. And let me let me just share this, and I'll, I'll close the chapter on the, on the basketball revenues. And this would be, I guess, through the six-year period leading up to 2012-2013. The Big 12 actually led uh, all the conferences in basketball revenue at $91.6 million. And the they AC- had more teams. The ACC was next at, at 88.2. The SEC was fourth at 77.8. So over that period, up until a couple of years ago, the ACC – $10 million more revenue split over six years divided by however many teams were in the league each each year. Uh, yes, it's more than the SEC. It's not as much more as what the SEC is getting on its television network, which is why we need to continue to uh, you know, beat that dead horse about when is that coming. But I will say, and we talked about this last week, if you're going to get $3 million for not having a network, that's better than getting nothing. For not having a network. Yes, yes. $3 million is more than zero last time I checked. All right, you have a story that, uh, in full disclosure, you did share with me when uh, – we actually, uh, I say that we hadn't seen each other in a while. We did have lunch together on Monday, which is kind of a rarity with our schedules, but we very did catch so. up. But you shared At it. Madison Social, I might add. I, we did. Which that, was very enjoyable. The hamburger was wonderful. This is, this is true. And I had the buffalo uh, chicken salad. I got it grilled instead of fried. It's, you know, it's my token effort at, at shedding LBs. Anyway, I digress. You had an interesting story about FSU fandom and the game at Valpo. One of the things that's unique about doing basketball is I travel with Deckerhoff. And, and, and being with Deckerhoff amongst ACC fans and specifically Florida State fans, I'm assuming is like being with a rock star because I've never been with a rock star. So I'm used to everyone coming up to Gene and basically ignoring me. Basically ignoring And that's okay. I'm fine with that. Gene's earned the right uh, to be who he is and be recognized who he is. Well, this fan came up to us in Valpo, Indiana. Now, Valpo, Indiana is a very small town. I mean, they do have an airport. It's but, not on my bucket list. But it's not where we could land, okay? We had to land in South Bend and, and bus an hour and plus to get to Valpo. Uh, we, we were able to, to, to see the airport, but we weren't able to land in the airport. There's only one place i want to go an hour plus from south bend and that's chicago well we saw that out the right side window of the airplane 
So I did see the, the Windy City. This fan comes up, has on Jameis Winston jersey, has on the Seminole Indian tribe jacket underneath it, has on the, the pants that look like the leopard skin pants but are the Florida State colors, has a 100 garnet and or gold beads around his neck, has a hat on. Oh, Mr. Deckerhoff, I love you. He took a selfie with Mr. Deckerhoff. Then he had a, some, his son or somebody come in and stand by. And all of a sudden he turns to me and goes, I love you too. Can I have a selfie with you? And he takes, we, we take a picture. And my first thought is, man, it's been a long You've time. You've arrived. It's been a long time since anybody cared about me. They're always fondling and appropriately so over Gene. So we do the ball game. We lose. The guy comes up to me. fondling or just fawning over him? That too. <laughs> the guy comes up to me after the ball game and hands me his program and said, would you please sign this? And I said, sure. And my standard signature is best wishes, Keith Jones, go Knowles. And then in the, 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 the bottom of the big Y on my last name, uh, J rather on my last name, I put number 28. He doesn't even look at it. So I've signed his autograph. I hand it back to him. He puts his arm around me and goes, thanks, Tom. (laughs) Hey, you know, I owe my Uncle Fred a a big thank you for setting you up on that. Is that who it was? No, no. I have no, to my knowledge, I have no relatives in Valpo. That's a great story, though. Thanks, Tom. (laughs) I told Decker off I can't win for losing (laughs) So that was the only highlight of the trip to Valpo. Not that we need to rehash that. Well, staying in a Best Western ranks right up there, too. (laughs) (laughs) The week before, the team stayed at a very, very nice hotel. In Valpo, we were in a Best Western. And that's probably on the Chamber of Commerce website if you go to Valpo. Big shot of that Best Western. Let me me say this, Weekend special. Let me say this. Great (coughs) brunch. Excuse me. Let me say this, though. As is always typical of the Midwest, the, the folks out there were wonderful. Uh, so I, I pick only at the dis, the difference between staying in a in a chain big chain hotel in Washington D.C. for the tournament versus a franchise owned Best Western in Valpo. People were wonderful. Uh, everybody we we had a, any association with just treated us like royalty. So it was great. All right, uh, good story. Uh, you told me that the other day. I said, "Oh, we got to talk about." That. We don't normal. That's about the only thing we've ever rehearsed for the show. Not that we rehearsed it, but I said you at least got to bring that up. Uh, we'll finish basketball here on this thought. Congrats to Hugh Durham uh, for making the Hall of Fame. That's you know Hugh Durham uh, predates my time at Florida State. Uh, I guess there was some overlap. A little bit of overlap with days. mine. Yep. But it, it's re- one of the remarkable things, and I've heard this story, and every time I, I read it, uh, it seems more and more phenomenal to me. But it's it's the '72 Seminoles who lost in the NCAA title game, uh, which that in its own right it is a remarkable accomplishment. But then when you look at who they played. Uh, and you probably know this, but so they beat Kentucky, which was Adolph Rupp's last game. And then they beat Carolina, and Dean Smith was the coach. And then they go play John Wooden. And you see, I mean, I, I don't know what the comparison would be nowadays. I guess somebody who gets stuck facing Coach K. And then uh, please silence your phones while we do the show, Keith. I mean, it's, is it too much to ask? I mean, honestly. It's the guy from Valpo. He's <laughs> best he, Western. He, he wants to talk you? to you. All right. Anyway. Congrats to Hugh Durham. I also, you know, he'll join Dave Cowens, uh, who he coached in the Hall of Fame. And I thought it was interesting that that Dominique Wilkins is going in in this class, too. And he coached Dominique Wilkins at Georgia. So he's the coach that got Georgia and FSU uh, to the Final Four and was one of the winningest coaches around when he retired. And uh, our good friend Barry Milligan knows him well from his days at JU. And one of the things uh, that that Coach uh, Durham has always done is, as as many of us who have played uh, athletics, regardless of sport, uh, you know, your first love is where you went to school. 
And while he did coach at Jacksonville, he did coach at Georgia, um, and obviously was the head coach at Florida State. Florida State is where he attended as a student athlete. Still ranks uh, in the top 30 or 25 in scoring. I think he has 1,300 points or something. Uh, His jersey is hanging up in the the Tucker Center. Uh, One of the nicest most pleasurable guys to be around now i understand he could be different when he was coach but in retirement the times that he comes over and he's over frequently uh to get the opportunity to just meet and chat and chat with him and and get to know him a little bit uh has been a great pleasure he's a huge ambassador for florida state and a huge ambassador for college basketball last thought on this uh because it occurs to me i've only heard stories of when he coached and fsu played in tully gym and basically the heat, the heat cer- certainly the air would be off and the heat might be on. Did you ever go to any of those games? I Maybe. did, and, and you you would go in there and sweat, period, the end. And he, I'm telling you, I, I didn't physically, personally see him do it, but I've talked to enough people that the story has to be true. He would go down, turn the daggum furnace up, and get that up to 80, 85 degrees. And what you just articulated is uh, the prominent theory on message boards and social media. So many people have said it. It must be true. Therefore, I believe it. So many people <laughs> have said it that I believe have some personal integrity as opposed to everyone else that's on social and media. And that is different than message boards and social media. We'll step aside, come back with uh, our Seminoles.com insider, Tim Linnefelt, right after this. Broadcasting live from the Prime Meridian Bank Studios in Tallahassee's All Saints District, this is The Front Row with Tom Block and Keith Jones, presented by Hobson Chevrolet. Get your best deal the Hobson way. Here's Tom Block and Keith Jones. Welcome back to the front row, Tom and Keith, with you, and uh, we are joined now by our Seminoles dot com insider Tim Linnefeld. A lot of you may think that uh, we call him an insider because of uh, all the scoop he provides. It's really because he's generally inside his office when we talk to him. Is that the case today, Tim? Uh, actually, not currently, but uh, but we'll be sure. Oh, so he's our Seminoles dot com outsider at present. This time, no, he's our Seminoles dot com in router. In router, okay. Now that we've cleared that up, uh, spring practice is underway. Uh, I'm sort of jaded on this because I've been around here a while. Uh, Keith gets shakes, uh, you know, violently if he thinks about his days of spring practice and and having to go through that. But uh, all that. So I guess what I'm I guess what I'm saying, and this is not a good way to promote this segment of radio, Tim, is that I'm not overwhelmed about it because I've heard the coach speak before. And no matter how great a guy does at spring practice, Jimbo will say something to the effect of, you know, he's he can do better at this. He's got to do this better. He's got to do this better. And we're not going to get a lot of real information. So I'm counting on you to give me some real information. What do you got from spring practice? Well, geez, with that kind of lead in, what, uh, what can I possibly tell you that could change your mind? What would you like to know? Who's the starting quarterback? Well, I don't think we know that yet. Uh, it's, it's, you know, the fact of the matter is it's still, you know, six months between now and the start of the regular season. And so when, when Jimbo says he's going to rotate quarterbacks to start, uh, he doesn't have any reason not to. So, you know, what, we're, what we expected to be true as has been true thus far, which is that J.J. Cosentino is the most experienced quarterback is starting off with the first team with uh, DeAndre Francois and Malik Henry mixing in. It does seem, uh, from what we can tell, that, that DeAndre Francois is a little bit more in the mix uh, than Malik Henry with the first team, like you would expect, seeing as, as he's also more experienced. But but as of right now, it, it, it's just too early to tell. I mean, I know you know we all kind of have our own expectations and, and, and thoughts about who should uh, who should be playing where, but 
uh, with with so much time to to evaluate and, and practice, there's there's no no reason, I guess, not to give guys a chance to compete. Does that make sense? It does. It certainly does. Yeah, and I'm firmly in the no matter even if one quarterback is head and shoulders better than the rest. At the end of spring, Jimbo's going to say, we're going to continue this battle in the fall, and Sean will get back in the mix. And probably on the Tuesday before the Ole Miss game, we'll get an announcement of a starting quarterback because that will officially start game week, don't you think? Uh, that, that sounds about right. I think the last year, I think we might have even talked about it. I, I looked back at all the previous quarterback battles. You could, you could like triangulate within a few days like exactly when in August uh, Jimbo Fisher would, would announce the starting quarterback. So I would expect a, a firm announcement to come somewhere around there and certainly not anytime soon well your job then tim is to uh, next time we talk give us what that date is and well, then we'll I've, start doing i've got it here unders. we're looking at august 29th is the monday and august 30th is the tuesday so we're, we're yeah, within that 48 hour window hey tim uh, i know obviously he's hurt right now but but what is uh how actively is sean out there talking with the other quarterbacks in team meetings and that sort of thing he's been out there for every practice uh, that i have seen uh he, he at least attends he's he's involved um, you know, talking to the other quarterbacks, encouraging guys. They've even seen him uh, a few times. Of course, he had his, his foot up on one of those, uh, I don't know what they're called, but, you know, they kind of elevate your foot. They're almost like little scooter things. He was still throwing balls to receivers uh, with, with his foot up off the ground. I thought that was pretty uh, pretty impressive and, and, and pretty funny in its own way. Well, but, yeah, given he, given the way he was involved. pressured in the Peach Bowl, he should be used to doing that. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Uh, I think it's good. Uh, one, I think it's good for the, you know, to show solidarity with the, with the quarterbacks. And then also, man, you know, to be quite frank with you, Hey, it's good for him to to stay out there and, and you know keep having face time with the offense, keep uh, keep his presence with the receivers, with the offensive line. And he's still going to have something to say about this quarterback competition. But the more he can still have a presence out on the practice fields, even if he can't participate, I think is a really smart thing for him. Through the early going, we'll stick on the offensive side. Through the early going, who's one? Or, who are one or two kids that? Uh, you see uh, are much different than when the season wrapped up. In other words, they've, they've, they're showing a great deal of improvement. Who would you highlight? I don't know if improvement is the word, but a guy who at least has caught my eye a little bit is, is Ryan Green. Uh, just moving back to running back, it was, it was funny the other day. Ryan Green, of course, wears the same number as Mario Pender. So when they saw a number seven running with the running backs, a lot of folks thought that it was Mario Pender at practice. Turns out, uh, no, it wasn't. It was Ryan Green. And you know, I don't know that he's as, as quick as, as Robin Cook or Mario Pender. Uh, but he does look like he he knows how to play running back. You can tell that he was a high school running back. Watching him sort of dart between the tackles, he has this, this cool little move that he does where he sort of ducks down low to the ground to get get under the shoulder pads, the line to get to the line. I saw him do that a couple times. Uh, you know, he looks like he could could be able to contribute there, which I think would be a uh, certainly a welcome change for him. I know that the last couple of years has been frustrating. Uh, and then also, particularly uh, the guys who have switched position, uh, looking at Rick Leonard, I don't know whether or not he'll start at right tackle this year or not, but he just looks like an offensive lineman. I think much more so than he ever looked like a defensive lineman to me. If you look at his build, just how tall he is, it's really remarkable uh, how tall he is. And, and the, the way that he is shaped, he looks like uh, an NFL caliber offensive lineman. Whether or not those skills follow uh, remains to be seen, but he definitely looks right at home with that group. Well, from the people, the limited people I've talked to, um, I, I kind of got the impression they had wanted Leonard to move last year and he resisted it. Uh, any insight into that? Uh, yeah, I, I think that there, there was talk about. I mean, there was talk about it ever since he got here. I think as a freshman, they were saying he could go both ways, and he'd start at out on defense. And so, and with the with, with the log jam at defensive end, you know, there's there's not a ton of guys there, but the guys who are there are pretty established. And, and once I think Josh Sweat emerged onto the scene last year, you know, we, we were all expecting big things from from Josh Sweat, but I don't know that we were expecting so much so quickly. And once you saw him sort of take control of that role, I mean, maybe it, it opened the door a little bit for. 
for, for Rick to say, hey, you know, if, if I want to get on the field uh, with, with any degree of frequency, a uh, position change might be best. Well, quietly, there are a number of people that think he has a chance to be uh, an outstanding right tackle. No, and I, I agree. Uh, we'll see how, how he comes together and, and you know, if, if those uh, – if those skills can match up with the the, uh, the physical tools, but just you know, if you walk out there and just look at him, uh, he definitely looks the part. So none of the forty-seven wide receivers are uh, distancing themselves. Uh, I wouldn't go that far. I, I do think Travis Rudolph. Uh, everybody's just absolutely raving about him, uh, the, the way that he is, uh, the way that he's playing, but also leading by example. I mean, Jimbo said that he's not a very loud guy. He's not very talkative. He definitely comes off that way, even in interviews. He's pretty mild mannered and quiet, but. Uh, you said just uh, with his, his work ethic and practice, uh, and, and showing, I guess, that standard for some of the young guys, which is really important. You think about all the, the young receivers that they have, uh, and the guys that they're going to need to count on this year, whether it's you know a, uh, a excuse me, whether it's a George Campbell or an Auden Tate or Nyquan Murray, you know, somebody from that group you would think is going to have to step up this year. And so having a, a receiver who can you know show them the ropes and and, and you know show them the right thing to do other than just Lawrence Dawson and Jimbo Fisher, I think is a valuable thing. And also, uh, before he got hurt, he, uh, he got a little banged up the other day, but, but uh, Javon Harrison, Dick Harrison, was having supposedly a pretty good couple practices too, uh, which again, for him, you know, for those juniors like Dick Harrison and, and Armand Lane, uh, you know, now it's kind of uh, it, it, it's time to, to get with it or, or risk being passed up by some of those younger guys, as, as is often the case when you reach your junior year. I feel like Ermon is already a forgotten commodity at this point. Uh, but, you know, not to say that uh, you give up on a guy. I'd love to see him emerge and be what uh, folks thought he was when he came in. I want to go back to what you said about uh, Rudolph showing leadership. To me, one of the real obvious voids on that team last year was leadership on the offensive side of the ball which is natural because there were no seniors save for the one who showed up on campus in July. Um, as the year developed, Jimbo gave a lot of praise to Bobo Wilson. And also when McGuire became the starting quarterback, he was doing his best to lead, but you can't lead as the backup quarterback. So really what I'm getting at is, are you seeing better leadership, more leadership on the offensive side of the ball right now? Hey, hey, you know, stuff like that. I, I hate to cop out. It's just really hard to say. It, it's hard to say in, Watching in, in limited practices, but yeah, you, 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 know, you do see little things. I think Dalvin Cook is a guy that the players really want to play for. Again, he's he's not a very very loud talkative guy, but, but people believe in him. They follow him. You know, I noticed uh, the other day toward the end of practice when uh, when things were dragging a little bit uh, and guys were sort of just, just sort of maybe dragging back to the to the line. One of the offensive linemen, I'd rather not say who, but one of the offensive linemen was, was sort of like just getting on to everybody. So like, hey. You know, let, let, let's get lined up and let's go, and, and, and maybe a, a little more uh, colorful than that, colorful uh, than our radio will allow. But you know, you're seeing guys maybe notice things when they they aren't the way they should be, and, and calling guys on it. I don't know how much that happened before, but but it's definitely a positive development. Yeah, well, that's good because I think that's an area. And and to to be clear, I think the reason there wasn't a lot of leadership was what I mentioned. A, they were underclassmen, and B. Uh, if you look at a lot of the key players for Florida State, they tend to be mild-mannered guys, like you mentioned with Travis, uh, Roderick Johnson maybe would fit that mold on the O-line, Dalvin. Uh, so I think it's just... All the ordinary guys are on the other side. Yeah, there is something there. How many Were you the leader or Monk was the leader, KJ? How many, or, 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 or many of the other guys on that team? Monk and I were, would rank down at the lower end because we had Reggie and, and Paul and Ron. What, was there one voice though, or was no, it? No, we we were a collective unit, and and there were times, uh, Monk much more than I, because he he just knew so much more about what was going on from his intellect standpoint. Um, but it, it was a collective effort, and 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 that's one of the things, however, that that I think has been lacking on this team on both sides of the ball, 
that uh, a lot of our fans get upset with. And Tim, I'd be interested in your comment. You know, when when a team comes out and, and is not motivated, is not playing with a lot of energy, fans, the typical fan has a tendency to think that that's the coach's fault. The coaches don't get the kids ready to play. They get them ready to play from an X and O standpoint. It's the seniors and the leaders that get the kids ready to play emotionally. And without that good leadership, there's been times when this Florida State program over the last couple of years has played a little without energy. Oh, yeah, I, I, I agree completely. And, and especially your comment on, on coaching, I think it was uh, I think it was Chuck Knoll who, who once they, was asked what he does to motivate his players. If I don't do anything to motivate them. If I have to motivate them, I'm going to fire them. So it's a little different at the college level, but the, but the point remains, you know, that that has to come from within. I think there's only so much that a coach can do uh, to, to stir that fire if it's not there. And and I also think from a leadership perspective, that could be a delicate balance. And I, and I think it has, has to happen in a lot of cases organically. Like you can't just point to a guy in the locker room and say, okay, you're the no, guy. No, no, no. Coaches can't appoint leaders. Right. There's no question. And so, you know, when you see a case, a situation like you had on offense at Florida State last year or just through, you know, some just, different roster dynamics where you were left without any seniors and then left with just some quieter guys. It's not necessarily that nobody wanted to step into that role, but it's just, it, it can be kind of an awkward thing. Like who's going to do it? This guy, well, why him? Why not you? And then, you know, you're six games into the season and, and, and that role is still empty. Uh, this just in, Jameis left a pretty big void in several ways when wow. when he left the team. Hey, uh, just a couple more minutes to go, Tim. We're gonna I want to bounce over to basketball, and uh, Keith and I talked at length about uh, Malik Beasley's decision. But I, I just want to get you to weigh in uh, on the uh, on the the side of the ledger for Sue Semrau's squad, which you know I I don't know what the what the thought was. My thought was it was a tough break that they didn't get to host the first two rounds, and it would take quite an effort to get them into the Sweet Sixteen. But uh, boy, they played their best game against Texas A and M the other night to get there. Yeah. Yeah, they really did, and and I think you know when you look at against Middle Tennessee, you had Leticia Romero play her strongest game in quite a while, and then against Texas A and M, a dude Bulgak played a really strong game down low, uh, and and now the task is really really daunting as you got to face the top seed in Baylor, thirty five and one on the year. I was looking at them, I was doing some research on them yesterday, and yeah, they're pretty frightening. But at the same time, you know, if, if Florida State plays the way it did in the last two games, and, and you know seems to be peaking at that right time, as, as the cliche goes. Uh, they can definitely compete. Well, and I understand that uh, you will be our insider on the road uh, in Dallas this weekend. I will be. I will be. Here's hoping my road record on that side uh, goes a little bit better than my. Uh, well, my and side remember this too: the first two games that the Seminoles, the, the the women won, were in Texas, so they're going back to a familiar state, right? That's right. That's right. They're in Texas for several days and come back home for a few. I guess to rest up and do some laundry and then hit the road right back again. Yeah, and and Keith, as you know, Texas is a really small state, so I mean, it'll all look <laughs> familiar to him. All right, that's Tim, our Seminoles.com insider. Why do you do that? Because <laughs> you, you walk into it every week. Tim. Every week, it just happens. Tim, come join yes, us sir. next time, please. I'll see what I can do. All right, hey, thanks, Tim. <laughs> Boy, that is a pure look of disgust, isn't it? My goodness. <laughs> All right, we'll sort it out. We'll talk about uh, <laughs> Kirby Smart and whether or not what he's doing is a uh, smart decision at the University of Georgia when we come back on the front row. Asian. We don't need no thought control. You are listening to The Front Row with Tom Block and Keith Jones. Only on 97.9 ESPN Radio. Here's Tom and Keith.
And welcome back, Tom and Keith, as we continue on. A lot of basketball talk, some football talk. I want to continue the football talk, uh, Keith, though. The, related to Florida State, but really it's a bigger college athletics issue. And it, it comes in the wake of the changing of the guard in Athens at the University of Georgia, where Mark Richt, uh, who we know from his time at Florida State, genuinely is a nice guy. And you know him from when he was coming out of high school and you were his host, I guess, here yep. at FSU. And uh, didn't do a very good job since he went. He to got East. away. He got away. But no, uh, you know, kind of the, the storyline now is no more Mr. Nice Guy. Uh, Mark has moved on to the University of Miami. We'll see how that works out. I, that that move interests me from just from the. Well, and let's clarify. We, we assume he's going to continue to be a nice guy at Miami. What we're going to be talking about is what is now going on in Georgia. Fair enough. And so. Cutting to the quick, what's going on is that Kirby Smart, who came from Alabama as a Nick Saban disciple, was here at FSU uh, earlier in his career. Uh, a player wants to transfer, and under Mark Richt, any player could transfer. Richt is actually on the record saying life is too short, uh, which is commendable for a coach in this day and age of college athletics, and unfortunately, probably directly tied to why he's no longer the head coach at the University of Georgia, because it wasn't a win-at-all-cost kind of mentality. Uh, I'm not saying Kirby is win at all costs, but certainly it benefits the coach, not the student athlete, or it benefits the program if you're going to go ahead and, and uh, draw a line in the sand and say, well, that's great. We wish you good luck in the future, but here's the schools that you can't go to. And that includes the SEC schools and it, who because George is in the SEC and includes the University of Miami, which is where Mark Rick now is. Now, by way of background, and we haven't done a lot of due diligence, but uh, let's let's put this in context. Generally speaking, it's always been my understanding, and, and you'd have to actually poll the individual conferences and make sure, but generally speaking, it was understood that if a kid signed with a conference school and attended that school and then wanted to transfer, either the schools individually, collectively, or the conference as a whole would have a requirement that it could not transfer to a different school within the same conference. And right, wrong, or indifferent over the years, I think many of us, myself included, came to understand that's a reasonable thing. If you're going to sign well, with and the, SEC and the school, student athletes probably knew it going in right, as well was, that that was right. the policy. Now, what's happened, and it it also bridges into another part of the discussion, is now you've got a coaching change, and in this particular case, Mark Rick previously would allow an athlete to transfer anywhere they wanted to go. I'm assuming the SEC rule might still be in effect, but let's just say Mark's philosophy was you could be allowed to go. Kirby's philosophy, Coach Smart's philosophy is no. You're not going to go anywhere in the SEC, and I'm not going to let you go to Miami. You're going to in have other to, words, you're not going to follow the coach that correct. recruited you. Now, that's one aspect of it. So that obviously is a change from what Georgia historically had done. The other complicating factor of it is what happens, which will lead to the bulk of probably of our conversation, what happens if the coach that you signed with leaves that institution? And you and I, I think, are in agreement that if I signed with Coach Bowden and in my sophomore year, Coach Bowden takes the LSU job and Tom Block becomes the head coach at Florida State, I, Keith Jones, ought to have the right to transfer without sitting out a year based on the fact that the coach I signed with has left the program. I would have been like seven or eight playing out that time frame, so it would have been an interesting dynamic if I had <laughs> succeeded Bobby. But no, and that's probably where I would fall. I, I always uh, tend to you know, go to the middle, and I think at the very least. I, so the reason that they don't, you know, coaches already work hard enough recruiting 
they don't want to have to recruit a kid twice and open up the recruiting cycle if they leave and all of a sudden all these players are literally free agents again. So in theory, that's why there's opposition to it. But if a coach leaves, whether it's of his accord or whether he was fired, uh, to me, yes, I would agree that if you sign with that coach, you ought to be free to, to look around and, and go wherever you want without having to pay your own way to school for a year, sit out a year, stop your clock, whatever. And again, for those that aren't familiar, if you transfer and you don't get the waiver, you have to sit out a year. So if you've not redshirted, you can use that as your redshirt year. You'll still get four years to play five. But five I think you still have four. to pay your way at your new institution. That that may or may not be the case. I don't know. But in terms of eligibility. However, if you've already redshirted, you know, if you came in as a freshman redshirted, during your sophomore year the coach changes and you want to transfer, now you're actually giving up a year of eligibility of playing if you don't get the the release. The other aspect of it, is there's been institutions, uh, excuse me, instances when the NCAA has said because we have sanctioned a particular university for this window, kids are free to transfer without sitting at a year. And that happened, and Florida State was the beneficiary of it with the tight end that transferred in from Penn State right. when Penn State was hit with their sanctions. Right. So it's it's there's several different layers to this onion called transferring that that i think we're reaching the point where it's going to have to be a little more addressed and it'll be interesting to see how it plays out yes it will be interesting to see to me these are the kind of things uh that the players should be fighting for and i understand why there's there's opposition from the coaches and i'm sure the coaches might point out some things that we're not bringing to light right now i was involved as you know in a in a contractual dispute over a non-compete clause years and years ago and without getting into the specifics of that, if you're in a non-compete clause, a lot of times they're tied to television or radio talent that you can't leave and go in the same market. But they're also prevalent. Uh, I don't know if they're in your industry and in insurance. They are in insurance and, 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 and financial are. planning and that sort yep. of thing. Because in theory, that company allowed you to develop your skills as a TV anchor. It, it, it allowed you to uh, develop your client base. And so company A doesn't want you to take your client base to company B. But if you if you move it to college football, because it's it's a little bit similar here, and you're requiring them to sit out a year, uh, as great as the coaching staff is at Florida State, if Dalvin Cook wanted to transfer tomorrow, can you make an argument that the reason Dalvin Cook is who he is is because he was coached at Florida State and he developed there? You can, but but the the I other mean, side of that argument is that that's immaterial. We are a nation of personal rights, and we should have the right to take our services wherever we want to take them based on whatever circumstance motivates us to leave. And unlike professional services or unlike television or radio personalities, there's not direct income being driven by those entities or like in the insurance business or financial services business where my clients are generating fees or commissions. In football, college football, it's the services of the athlete. That's the argument that says they should be allowed to go and come however and whenever they want. I don't think either one of us are of the opinion that we should have a true free agency system. But I am of the opinion that there should be certain triggers, certain things that happen that then would allow the college athlete the right to transfer without having to give up a year of eligibility. Or having to sit out. Yeah, I would agree with that. I'm not necessarily advocating for free agency. Although, you know, when you look at it, and this has come up uh, with cost of attendance and 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 uh, 
given the players more of their due, so to speak, over the last few years, you know, you sign that letter of intent, really it's it's renewable year to year. Now, coaches that don't renew their student-athletes, Steve Spurrier did this when he first got to South Carolina and managed to alienate a lot of high school coaches well, there initially. Well, that's been changed. That is now, it's, in most conferences, it's now a four-year agreement. Well, which, you are correct. Previously, which, it was Which is the second half of my thought process related to this conversation. If, if the school is agreeing that they're going to honor their scholarship for four years, then, I, you know, it's probably a four-year commitment for the student-athlete to the school – except for the circumstances we're describing. And then you get into, well, the student-athlete should choose the school because of the school or the program. Uh, let's be honest. Very few are choosing it that way. They're choosing it because of their coach. Myron Roll might have chosen Florida State because he liked what it had to offer. He liked getting to play for Coach Bowden. and he liked getting a combination of factors. The average student-athlete is not going in and choosing a school because of its chemistry program. Probably not. Yeah. All right. You know, another thing. Here's the topic for another show, Tom. Make a note, Tom. Make a note. In the NFL, they have rules about uh, coaches making lateral moves and when you can interview coaches if their teams are still playing. And, and so that always happens in January, and sometimes there's a delay for a head coach, and it's obvious it's because they want to talk to a candidate whose team is still in the playoffs. Uh, you could come up with something like that, too. Now, this is going the other way. This is a little more restri- restrictive to coaches. But, uh, you know, then you, you don't have the coaches leaving and the domino effect taking place in October, November, December. You could get it hashed out in a time frame that allows you to still sign what you need or move these kids. You don't look like you want to make that a topic for another show. You just want to leave it as is. Free market all the way. All of our listeners should know that I'm shaking my head up and down. Yes. He's not drooling at present, though, so we do have that in our That's favor. an improvement. All right. We'll come back and wrap up the show right after this on the front row. Listening to the front row with Tom Locke and Keith Jones. Got a question? Email them at the front row at 979ESPNRadio.com. Here's Tom and Keith. Welcome back to the front row. Just a couple of minutes to finish up. Anything else on your mind that uh, we need to discuss? Well, we're getting into concert season, and, and there are three groups individuals and or groups that are making their way to tallahassee that that speak to my age group you ready i know i know one of them for sure go ahead steve miller band steve miller band there we go peter frampton that would have been the second yeah i saw that and boz skaggs i mean boz skaggs was huge when i was in college we were staying at the old Coble Terrace, and they were one-bedroom apartments without the doors facing outside with balconies. And you you just open your door, and whoever had the loudest photogra- phonograph and loudest speakers, it'd be Boz Skaggs and, and Steve we need, Miller Band. We need visuals for our Band. younger audience, Keith, to explain what you're talking about. It was a, it was an album. It was a black thing about 12 inches in diameter. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> So are you going to all those concerts? I, I, I will I will catch at least one of them. I will definitely go to the Bozcat concert because I've just never seen them in person in 35 years. Well, we'll expect a full report, especially if you sit in the front row. Ooh, very nicely played. Hey, Mr. on the way out, I need to mention uh, thank you to the uh, Flying Bear. Great American Grill does a great job. Uh, we appreciate their support. They're up on Thomasville Road, just past the Walmart on the left, open 11 to 9 weekdays, 11 to 10 on weekends. Why don't you sit on the front row at the Flying Bear? There we go. 
All right, he's Keith. I'm Tom. We'll do this again next week, uh, regrettably. (laughs) 